Yeah. Ready to go. Hi, and welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarik of Merrick Law. I'm joined by my co-host today, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hi, Evan. How are you doing? Hi, Heather. Great, as always. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Yeah, hanging in there, hanging in there. Uh, we're joined today by a very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James. Hi, Kim. How are you doing? Hi, Heather. Hi, Evan. Thanks again for having me on the program today. Excited to have a, another financial neutral or financial person on the show because now it's even Stevens, lawyers and financial people. So mm. I always like these episodes. <laughs> Me too. I learn a lot. Um, I learn a lot from them. So I'm looking forward to our chat today. Um, Access to Justice is a Canadian podcast with a mission to educate Canadians about the law. We interview experts in law, mental health and finance, focusing on the topics that create the greatest barriers of entry into the justice system. You can find us on YouTube on our A2J podcast channel and online at a2jpodcast.com. So without further ado, I would like to welcome today's guest, Vince Gervais. Hi, Vince. Hey, Heather. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Not too bad. Just uh, September is always a busy time of year for us. We have uh, the summer lull and then even this year on August 30th was sort of the end of the last weekend. The phone just started ringing off the hook. So we are busy, but it's always, uh, it's always good to take some time away to inform. And I'm looking forward to, to the questions, variety of questions uh, that will come. Great. Well, we're so excited to have you and really appreciate that you take time out of your busy schedule. It's back to school time right now, too, as we film this. So there's, yeah, also there's always a, a sort of a transition at this time of year that everybody's getting used to. Um, so Vince, I just have a quick introduction. I kind of peeled this from your bio. You're a principal at Frost Valuations in Edmonton, Alberta. I understand you have a Bachelor of Commerce degree and you're also a chartered business valuator. Uh, Vince has been valuing businesses in Alberta and Saskatchewan since 2008. And outside of work, I understand you're an avid cyclist, an aficionado of classic literature, uh, Francophile, <laughs> which I took from our conversation earlier this week. You're a big fan of Paris, and you are the proud and new owner of a Costa Rican coffee farm that prides itself on equal trade. So, um, uh, anything else you want to share or correct in that bio? I tra I changed our traded cycling for running, so we run all the time. Okay. We even do. Uh, full family runs now so the entire from the eight well the baby uh who is just over one now goes in the stroller so he's not a very good runner but the eight-year-old to 12-year-old they all run with me and we do yeah no kidding and we do uh between five and eight k um each week there's a five a six and an eight k that we do so that's the only change um the equal trade coffee thing we could talk about that probably forever um, it's something that I sort of devised with the, with the locals in Costa Rica when I bought a farm, bought a farm off of, um, uh, a family there. And then I started spending a bit of time out there sort of 
getting the lay of the land. And we started dealing, started talking about middlemen and where all the, where all the money for the coffee goes. And we found out we could, you know, we sold direct from, from them, uh, sorry, from Costa Rica to Edmonton or Canada, what have you, they could make a lot more money. Just that an idea of how much the coffee farmer actually makes down in Costa Rica, they make less than 10% of the, the value of the bag and the, the actual cost add is about 20%. So there's, mm. there's a sort of a missing 70% for the Costa Rican farmer. And the way we worked, it, worked out our equal trade thing was they get about 50 uh, percent of the total sale price. So they're up about 400 percent or, you know, you call it 500 percent. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it's not necessarily oh, okay. what we're here for today, but it's a, it's a really interesting venture. I mean, I was looking at coffee farms the other day. Uh, what made you buy one in Costa Rica? Well, <laughs> um, I the other thing I traded cycling for was cigars. Um, and I absolutely love cigars. So I had the idea that I would make my own cigars. And so I thought I'd, I'd get into growing tobacco. And uh, I know quite a few people in the Caribbean, a few down uh, in Central America. And I said, well, where should I, where should I buy one? I'm thinking Nicaragua. And they said, well, if you want to lose all your money or maybe pay a lot of bribes and, and so on, then Nicaragua is a good choice for you. I thought, okay, so a bad idea. So it was kind of nice. I got in with a, uh, a guy named Philip Wynn, who's an owner of a cigar company. I just texted him on LinkedIn. I said, hey, what's the deal with growing tobacco in Costa Rica? He said, don't do it. And I said, oh, he's just trying to get rid of the competition. So I'm going to try and do it anyway. So I spent two weeks looking around and came to the conclusion that he's being pretty honest and that it was really a bad idea to buy a tobacco farm, but I still wanted to do a farm. And the coffee farm that we got is, uh, is in Costa Rica. And Costa Rica is really... A lot like Canada, more paperwork even like they, you know, when you go to certain countries, you can get the sense that things are loose. They're not loose at all, they're, but they're not mean about it either. But their paperwork is second to none. I need to get a bank account. I needed to submit five years of my bank statements just to get a bank account. So a very, very um, administ administratively strong company and uh, a standard of living. It's not a massive poverty standard of living. It's just a, a really nice place. And they have some of the best coffee growing in the regions in the world. And that's, that's where our farm is. It's in this uh, place called Cope, which is in Dota, which is in Terra Zoo, which is in San Jose, which is so on and so forth. So the addresses are about 50 characters long, more like 150. That's crazy, our address. But uh, yeah, uh, so safe to answer your question. Um, Well-administered and high quality was uh, how we got into Costa Rica. You ever thought about growing some uh, some cocoa there as well while you're at it? Get some chocolate out of there? That's not a bad idea. And the thing with coffee is that you need to, so you'll have your coffee trees and they'll be, you know, dispersed throughout. Then you need shade trees. Mm -hmm. And so you, you don't really want a, you know, a single crop thing. So if you look at like a Starbucks farm, and our farm's not far from the Starbucks main farm in there, is they have like these rows, these really ugly rows. You see that orange soil under it. It's sort of, runs like that that's a that's a bad coffee farm because for a few reasons they're just sucking all the nutrients out of the soil and there's not much to go back into it whereas ours looks like a jungle with trees in it so you have all sorts of things you've got banana trees you got grasses you got shrubs you got all sorts of things and for land like that what happens is you have vegetation dying and you know re uh 
re renutritionizing the soil. That's not a word, but I've yeah, that's no, that's the term. That's the yeah. uh, <laughs> the technical term. And then, um, but it also provides shade. So your plants last longer. Plants have a life of about twenty years, so your plants last a lot longer if uh, if you have shade on it. And you can put basically anything you want. And and uh, um, uh, cocoa could be one. What we have right now is uh, avocado trees. So we've got, I feel like the ultimate hipster having an avocado slash coffee farm, but uh, that's, that's what we have. Nice. Yeah. So it sounds like you're into, uh, I think they call it permaculture, right? Of just farming in a sustainable way that can be self self-sustaining as opposed to, you know, the old industrial model of leaching everything out of the soil and erosion and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's very profitable too, especially for the employees who like they live on the farm. So mm -hmm. they could spend their wages going to get food, or I can say just eat whatever you want. And so um, they do. They the avocado trees are pretty bare, um, but they're pretty well fed. So it's 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 awesome. So how much is that farm worth? Ooh, uh, numbers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you haven't done you haven't done a valuation. Oh no, I've probably done it about thirty times. Every second day, how much are we doing? How's the production rate going? I want to know how. How do we get our hands on the coffee? Oh, you can go to. We we're literally sold out right now. Um, we we just brought in a small batch first, but it's a d o t a coffee company dot com, and you'll see my ugly face on the website all over. We've got. We go through all the equal trade stuff we just talked about, or you can Instagram at us, us at Dota Coffee Company or Facebook Dota Coffee Company as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we hired a social media guy recently and his style is different than ours. Like you'll see, you'll see if you check it out, but um, ours is more natural. His is more stock. It's called that. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. I, that's one of my uh, life goals is to be in a situation where I can, buy a farm that practices whatever it's farming in a sustainable environmentally sustainable way because I, I feel like um it's just it's just a better way to do things I don't know there's something about that that really appeals to me I don't really know why or how to explain it but I think you're right I think you're right that it, it's it's a better way to do it and it the big thing with it is the the startup cost is lower I don't I don't really know when um, non-permaculture or you know, less less natural farming is better. Maybe it's when you get to the, the really high end, but in those mountains, um, you can't really get machines out there. Like you are literally on the side of a mountain. There's no, it's not a, a euphemism or anything. It is the side of a mountain. So maybe when, you know, maybe when you're using really heavy fertilizer and heavy pesticides, that's why all that stuff goes away. But if you, if you don't want to do that, uh, like, I don't know how Starbucks even has a, um, it's not, not free trade. What's that? When the organic, organic certification, having lived at their farms, I'm not, I'm not really sure how that makes any sense. I guess they're Starbucks. So they can, they can be made, maybe rather They'll decide. Maybe sure. they made their own organic, uh, um, what's the word for it? Uh, their own designation. Yeah. Yeah. They made their own. We're Starbucks organic. Right. Right. Yeah. Anyways, we don't want to get sued by Starbucks. I'm sure uh, everything's great in the Starbucks coffee farms. I, I was going to 
I was about to go off on a capitalist rant about how whether or not environmental degradation is included in in the in the valuation of corporations. But you know what? Maybe we'll step aside and we'll take a step back and, <laughs> and we'll use that as a segue to ask Vince, our expert today. Um, why do folks get business valuations to start off with? Like, what are the different situations of why people might be getting valuations? And then I think we'll definitely move into like what goes into them, because I think we've sort of touched on how broad businesses can be and, and how many factors are involved. So let's start there. Why do people get business valuations? Okay. How do they end well, up in your office? Yeah. So I think the first thing to think about business valuations is that they're notional. They are a situation where a company is not actually selling. Uh, you know, when you get a, an appraisal for your house, it's not typically because you're selling your house. Your realtor comes and says, how much do you think we can get, get this for? Or how, you know, how much do you think we can sell this for? And then you expose it to the market. And then the market decides if uh, your house is worth it. If it sells in a day, then you were probably too low. And then maybe you don't accept the offer and you relist or what have you. Um, but the market determines what the price of that house is based on real world buyers and sellers bidding or not bidding on the house. Mm -hmm. The valuation or the sale of a business is similar in the sense that you can put it to market and, and see what you can get. Well, when we do evaluation, what we're trying to do is, is mimic that. It's a situation where we want to know what the value of the business is without exposing it to market and without selling it. Um, and those are sort of two different components that we won't go into today, but it's always for a reason other than actually selling the company. And sometimes it can be related to selling a company, but mostly it's a, a notional reason. So then you have, well, who would need to just know a price, a value or what have you, right? Um, and then mm -hmm. the answer then is, well, people who need to assign a number for a purpose other than getting money or for giving away or for getting a portion of money. So uh, as we know, there's the most common for business valuation is I would say corporate divorce is number one. So five shareholders, one shareholder wants out, and then you go ahead and you value the company based on what you think you would get for the company. Um, and then someone gets bought out or someone buys someone out or something to that effect. The next one is, next most likely is tax planning. So the government says, I'm okay with you transferring your, your company, but it's gotta be at fair market value. So you get the evaluator to come in, do their due diligence, do what's called a reasonable effort. And that's for any sort of tax planning in order to, to paper something or to say, I'm doing a transaction at a specific price. I need to do, I need to know that I'm making a reasonable effort to determine that my price is at market value or whatever specific term the CRA uses for that purpose. The third most common um, is probably matrimonial separation. So divorce where spouse A is owns a business and is gonna keep it. And spouse B uh, has no interest in owning the business and needs to be bought out. Very similar to corporate divorce uh, the only the only real difference there is that in corporate divorce, let's say those five partners, they all kind of know the business reasonably well, whereas in, in, in matrimonial settlement or personal divorce, I'm not sure if that's a term you'd use, but one person often knows more 
and then the other person knows less and that's a bit of an issue because then there can be disagreement and lots of black holes and sort of uh, more fog in that scenario. Um, then the next most common is uh, prior to sale. Maybe that's not the next most common, but it's probably pretty up there. So someone, they want to take their business to market. They don't really trust business brokers. So they want to get an idea if, you know, this is the time to sell and they want to, they want to take their report to the business broker and say, yeah, this is what I want for it based on you know, this person I've done work with in the past or some of those credentials that I trust because business brokers are like realtors, they're salesmen and they mm. get paid when they sell something. So they may want to shore that up. Uh, the other side of business brokers is the business broker comes to, to us and says, my client has an unrealistic expectation about what their business is worth. Can you please do evaluation so that we can list it for a reasonable price? Um, so that's that's another one like the sort of pre-sale, but it's more from a different angle, not saying I want to protect myself, making sure I'm getting a good broker price, but a broker saying we need a realistic price and um, our client won't believe us. And that's that's more common than you'd think. Um, but when people work for, you know, work to build a business their entire lives, it's really hard to let go of it for more or sorry, for less than they, they think it's worth. That's a real hard emotional thing. Um, and then the last one I'd say is for financing, last common. So a bank says, mm-hmm. hey, you, uh, someone just bought a company. I, I want to lend on it, but I need to know that the value that they've paid for it is reasonable. And I want to be able to sue someone if, uh, if they, don't, they default on their loan. So I'll get you to write a report. I'll get into your, uh, you know, your pers- professional liability insurance if, if so happens. And that's really how you know, a lot of appraisal specialists, that's a lot of the reason why we're hired so like commercial uh commercial appraisal is there so that banks can have some liability insurance to buy into if the fundamentals are wrong or to bite into in a lawsuit or if an equipment appraiser appraises something then you know they get it wrong and the bank can go after that that uh liability insurance which is normally you know bridges the gap for so many things luckily our firm's never been down that road um and so we'll We'll keep on that trend. But those are sort of the main reasons why people will get evaluation. So my question is, does the reason for the valuation change the way that the valuation performed and therefore maybe change what the value is? Like the result of the valuation? Yes. Well, the only thing that will change and so your, the answer to your question is yes, but because um, the only reason the valuation should change is because of your, the information that you have. So uh, as an example, we already sort of got into a little bit with the, with the five partners that own the business. If I can talk to five competent managers, as well as their capable bookkeeper, and maybe their accountant, and I can look at their general ledger and everything's organized, then I'll have, you know, the best information possible. Like it's going to be great info. Um, so in that instance with perfect info, um, we should never really have a difference in, 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 uh, in opinion. That said, uh, it's the, in, the information difference that matters. The other thing that can change is assumptions. So someone might say, okay, uh, I'd like my company valued on the basis that uh, I've opened my new location and we're two years in, or I want it based on the idea that, that our salaries are over, are, are too high 
and we're going to go from the salaries being 30% of uh, revenue to 25%. And what's that look like? And where you get into trouble in terms of different values is when someone says, well, 25% is actually really reasonable um, based on my understanding of the market. And then someone else will say, no, I think 32 is actually reasonable. I think they're underpaid. And so you end up having this argument back and forth over who's got the most reasonable assessment of the market. The, sometimes the tiebreaker is, well, what's actually happened? Well, it's been 30. So we'll, we'll, we'll go with 30 because we know that exists. Um, so, the, so the purpose should not define it. The other reason why the purpose would define it would be because the level of engagement, again, going back to the availability of information, if you have a low level engagement, like a calculation business valuation, you're gonna have less access to information and you have basically built into the report, uh, not necessarily a requirement, but an allowance to rely on management. So calculation valuation report is basically saying that you will um, rely on management representations to make your conclusion, which makes for a fairly quick valuation. Someone says, here's my company, here's my financial statements. And you say, well, why'd this happen? They say, well, because of Y. And why did X happen? Well, because of Z. And then you go, back and forth discussing with them. And you can't go so far as to, to you know, if they say Z is you know, this unimaginable scenario, then, you know, your professional, your professionalism and your requirements under the, the Canadian Institute of Chartered Business Valuators kicks in. But outside of that, uh, you can go with any reasonable management assumption. And that's on a calculation valuation level. So the low level of report. So if you're there, um, the purpose is management information and they just want to know because they want to know for estate planning. So the one I didn't mention, they're thinking like, well, when am I going to retire? So they do, they're looking ahead. That valuation will come up with something really different than if you do a comprehensive business valuation report where anything management says needs to be proven by documentation. So they say, let's use, um, Let's use capital expenditures as an example. So you, you're looking at their books and they've got a, a bunch of um, semis so say we're doing a transportation company. Yeah, and, so, and sorry, you, can I just stop you there for a second? Can you just yes. quickly explain um, what is a capital expenditure? I see, um, yeah, for sure. A capital expenditure is a, a large expense. So it would be something like buying a, a semi truck or buying a, a Zoom boom. I don't even know what that is, but I know people buy them. <laughs> or buying a, a zoom. A zoom boom is like the thing with the with a bucket on it that you can put up in the air. Okay, okay, I know what a zoom boom is. That's a zoom boom. <laughs> um, or some, you know, a major piece of equipment over five thousand dollars. Some, depending on the size of the company, it could be over thirty. You know, like a truck is considered a capital expenditure, but it's not for a big, big company, it's not a big deal, but for a small company, you know, it is a legitimate right. capital expenditure. So you, you might say to management, okay, we've got our amortization amount that the accountant put in, but we know that the amortization calculation is just an accounting-based estimate. It's applied evenly for any company, whether or not they use the asset. So it's not accurate. Um, and, and no accountant will tell you that it is. But then you want to make your, what you want to do is you want to say, okay, your amortization amount, which explains on the financial statements, how much you're spending on your capital expenditures. We want to take that out. Then we want to make a better estimate of, of what that is. And if you say to management, well, how much do you spend a year? It looks like on average, you're, you're purchasing $60,000 worth of um, capital expenditures per year. And they say, oh no, 
we've been we've been building up capital expenditures over the last five years because we want to sort of run our equipment into the ground for the next seven, and then we'll do another cycle. So what you got to do is you got to average that out. Some of them might say so. Really, it's more like thirty or twenty-five or what have you. Um, so on a calculation level, I'll say, okay, great, that that makes sense, right? That's a based on a measurement representation that is you know, not unreasonable, and we we put it in there. But on a comprehensive level report, we'd say, okay, well, can we see the the past five years of financial statements? Do you have any internal documentation commenting on you know your asset or your capital acquisition plan? Um, and then can we see maybe the mileage? We might go that far depending on how severe of an engagement it is and say, can we see the mileage on these vehicles or can we see any proof of you selling an old, you know, an old Dodge? Let's just use a, a truck as an example. Have you, have you ever you know, driven a Dodge to 400,000 kilometers and then sold it for $1,500? So is your, is your assertion uh, accurate? So it's a lot of the same work, but it would come up with a you know, completely different result. Um, and uh, whether, in a comprehensive, you can't necessarily assume things. You have to prove it. Uh, you can have an assumption, but uh, it has to be very clear that it's assumption. It might even be a scope restriction because it's normally more like an audit than it is a, a, a management-driven document. Does that answer your question? Yes. So that, that basically, <laughs> the, the answer, I thought it was a very short question. We get that all the time as lawyers. I've got a simple question for you. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, the question is simple, but the answer <laughs> is not so simple. So the, the question was, so different type, the re, does the reason for evaluation affect the actual outcome of the valuation? And if I understand your answer correctly, the answer is yes, but not because you're trying to evaluate a higher or lower, lower or anything like that, but just because depending on the type of evaluation, you're going to have access to different information. And the better your information, the better the valuation. Sometimes you're relying on what the managers say, and other times you, you don't care so much what they say. You want to see document documentation to back it up to make sure that it's... I'm assuming that's what the bank wants. That sounds like something the bank would want. I don't care that you uh, made these capital uh, acquisitions and you're going to ride them to the ground for the next seven years. I don't believe you. Let's see what you did the last five years. That sounds like the bank. That's right. Well, interesting enough with the bank, they kind of want to see the market norm. So what, what they'd ask me more for is they, well, they're, they're saying they're spending uh, 30 a year, but what's the norm in the market? Because uh, they, they like to you know, run on, on their ratios and they've got their own sort of internal uh, profit and loss and averages information and that sort of thing. So they might ask, they might ask you to run it with a different assumption. It's very rare for banks to ask for a comprehensive level report because it, I think more or less, they want to they want to make sure that they're following what the industry suggests. So, Kim, you probably know this better than I do. There, the banks got their sort of list. Okay, this this industry makes seventeen percent, and ooh, they're doing twenty five. I don't like that. That doesn't make any sense. What would this company look like if it was only doing seventeen? Because the the idea is re replicability. So, right. if if a company is doing twenty two percent and they're selling it to a new owner, and let's say it's a twenty employee sort of company, can they rep can they replicate that 22%, which is roughly 33% higher than the norm? Um, then you, they, the bank really wants to bear down on how much is the norm mm -hmm. and how much does that norm suggest they can repay their loan? So calculation would actually sort of be better for a bank uh, than a comprehensive. Because a comprehensive, 
is based on sort of what's in place, whereas a calculation is based on uh, what's in place plus some assumptions for uh, what may occur. Interesting. You got me thinking a little bit about how group benefits providers or carriers uh, have a big pool of companies that similar companies, and they use them as a proxy for when they're uh, coming out with a quote for a right. new company to come on board and what they're going to uh, charge for premiums. So it got me thinking about you CBV's events where you guys probably start over time, you start to collect, you know, your, your companies and you can kind of see how certain companies operate. There's certain assumptions that sort of carry over. And it, it makes me think that there's a lot of value in a very experienced CBV because you've been figuring out companies, all their little nuances. You've got this, you know, book of uh, proxies and it helps you with future valuations. Is that correct? To a certain degree, I would say almost when we're dealing at least in, in my space with the sort of 2 million to 50 million in revenue company, the, the reference book is good. But I think what you find with experience is that companies in different industries are kind of like your kids. You think they've got the exact same genetic makeup. They're going to be the same, but then they're not. They're not like alike at all. Um, you know, they, they went to the same school, same house, but they're, they're just very, very different. And I think where the qualified CBV comes in and where the, the help really, really, really happens is in recognizing those differences. So you might say, we'll go back to our 17 and 22% uh, scenario. You'd ask, the bank would ask, or the, the buyer would ask, and probably the buyer would be most interested, you know, how are they doing so? And one of the common things, and this is sort of a yawn for most business valuators to talk about, but that's okay, is the, the change or the type of management. So a really strong manager uh, who has got great relationships will be able to maybe get contracts at a better value than an incoming manager. But if the, that strong manager is also the owner, which it often is in that sort of 10 to, to 50 million range, um, you're not going to be able to transfer that value with the company. Uh, another good example would be the same situation with a strong manager and you have either under or overpaid employees um, and knowing, you know, why is this company doing 11%? Well, everyone's friends in this company and as the company's wealth uh, improved, the, uh, the salaries of the, of the people improved, or maybe they went through a boom and everyone got used to the certain amount of money they made a bigger company or a public company would be just reducing salaries or letting people go. Whereas this company, they just, they kept it at 2007 levels and they kept on doing 2% inflation, that sort of thing. Or a good evaluator will find out how they do their processes differently. And that's, I mean, that's a beauty, right? Cause then you're going, okay, well, the 22% is not from this cool manager. It's from this uh, administrative uh, calculation system. Or it's from this, the way that they, they run their trucks. They, they have a really good sort of fuel policy. So they're running their trucks a lot leaner than anyone else. They've got, they decided to invest in this technology and they're the only, you know, they got exclusive rights on this technology. Or, or they just have a manual in place for managing their machines or for managing their staff. And so they're getting better efficiency out of them. And that's, that's really where the value of a company comes in. Uh, Kim, the other thing, it is nice to be able to compare those two management to management people. And that, like with a business valuator, if you're a good one, you'll spend a lot of time talking to management and know them. So um, 
I normally am on, I guess, like a close to, to friend basis, probably a lot like a matrimonial lawyer or uh, like a financial planner. By the time we're done the engagement, we've been, we've talked a lot. I know a lot about them. I likely know uh, at least the number of kids they have, that sort of thing, and how their personality affects the company. Because to me, you have to know that if you're valuing a company, you absolutely must know what, you know, if their personality has an impact on the company, only way you could do that is by having, you know, pretty good discussions with them. And the financial statements and talking about you know, someone's five years of financial history, just an example. If I looked at your tax return and I said, hey, Kim, what happened here? What's going on there? Oh, good job there. You know, I'd find out quite a bit, a lot of, you know, quite a lot about you. And you, you know, one year you might've made X and then the next year you made 30% more of it. So you're having troubles at home? Like why? Well, you worked too much last year or something like that, right? So there's a lot you can read in the tea leaves um, by going over someone's financial statements. And I think that's, the database is nice, but understanding why the data differs, which is something you really have a, have a deep dive and a deep uh, level of curiosity is, is where it really, really matters. And uh, not to harp on databases being bad, I think the database you should have is a numerical one and that's good. Um, but you can also uh, look at other databases that are available online. Uh, Stats Canada uh, basically prints all of everyone's tax returns, but in an aggregate data. So they, if, you're in, hmm. if you're in a trucking company, Stats Canada takes all the tax returns, boils them all down, and gives you averages. So that, that's all there. You know, hmm. you have a pretty good idea what industry is. And then if you're smart with analyzing financials, you can sort of add it back. And then there's private databases that have the financials of, of certain companies. And then in Alberta, God love Alberta, has, uh, has um, you know, wage, a really good wage database. So those things are good, um, but it is, again, understanding the differences and how they vary from the norm uh, is important. So I agree, Kim, that knowing what the norm is, is pretty good, but then filling the holes is is a real win. If you can, mm. you can find someone who can do that and it's not, it's not common. That's why, like, you'll see evaluators have a lot of small shops. Uh, you know, there's there's quite a few small shops for you know the amount of work that's out there, and it's hard for uh, bigger companies to hang on to their business evaluators because we have we have a lot more latitude when we don't have to be in that sort of uh, billable hour structure or you know doing work in a similar way to accountants do. When we say, you know what, on this file. I'm just going to take some time to really get to know this guy because um, his company's doing something pretty special and it's going it, to, it's not just a checklist thing. I'm going to have to maybe go visit the site or maybe like the, sorry, the, the, the place of work, or maybe I'll have to uh, you know, have a less formal conversation with him, have a, have a beer, just say, Hey, let's talk about the company, that sort of thing. Uh, whatever it is um, to get to the bottom of that information is, is really it makes the job fun, but it makes the, the valuation so much more clear and better. Well, I think I think Kim's comment still kind of applies there because what what I'm hearing from you is that yeah, yeah, you need to have that that like as you call it the database of companies where you get to see them and you get to know. But um, how would you know you, if you go to the site right and you go take a look around and see what they're doing, or you go to the factory, or you go to wherever they're doing their technical work? Yeah. Don't, like, how are you going to know what they're doing different that sets them apart unless you have that experience where you've seen, you know, 10 other companies and then, you know, 
Yeah, absolutely. Some, yeah. yeah, Kim some is, companies Kim is might right. not know what their secret sauce is, right? They know they're doing well. They know they're doing something differently. They might be more profitable than their counterparts down the block, but they don't, maybe they themselves don't know why. Yeah, I think, I, I think business owners sometimes think their special sauce is something different than it is. <laughs> right, right. They may not realize they may be doing something really great and take it totally for granted and think something else they're doing is really important that actually does nothing. Yes. And going to the site is interesting because people love talking about their business. Like I, you, you got me talking about the farm and we were on it for how long and I could have gone on and on and on yeah. because it's something you do all day. So if you can, you know, it's almost like a, a question, even like a small question about a business, especially if you're right at the business and you're like, Oh, uh, you know, how many hours you got on that zoom booth? And then uh, <laughs> and they'll, they'll go on, they can go on for an hour. And then you see another piece of equipment. Oh, how are your, how are your rigging mats? And then it'll, it'll go on for a long time. So people do love talking about their business, and that's that's kind of why a site visit's good. And Kim is Kim is 100 right in the sense that that collective uh, you know knowledge about companies and and how they run is is absolutely huge. Yeah, I can see how that would really make the differences stand out. Um, yeah. you've seen a few, then you see, oh wait, this guy's, this guy wears his shoes on the wrong feet. That must be something, there must be something to it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the CBVs are true detectives. They, they have to be able to also spot lies and, and maybe miss, maybe more like missing information, not necessarily lies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I started my career, I used to, used to get really fiery because, um, I used to get lied to all the time. I thought, geez, you know, went into accounting to, to do this, you know, this honest thing. And uh, I thought when I you know, said I'm never going to step foot in the CRA again, I, I, would, uh, I would stop getting lied to. And, <laughs> and then I realized I get lied to every single day. Like this, it's not necessarily, no, it's probably lies. Um, but what you, after a while, you, after you get, you know, over it, which took me a few years, then you get into the uh, get into looking for uh, to recognize the lies. They're very common. It falls into a reasonable pattern, but also um, you you expect a certain type of lie, and if you don't get that lie, then that's that's interesting. So there's sort of a set of answers you can you can expect from any sort of question or any any matter. And when you hear the truth, you you know it because you've seen it so many times. Of course, you know there's always room for refinement and improvement. But yeah, there there is a lot of lying, and there's there's the one thing that you don't have in most conversations of getting lied to is the financial statements, right? So things like you know if I like my comment earlier about you went, your revenue went up by thirty percent last year. How did how did that happen? And they say, oh, you know, well, we invested more in staff. So, you know, I'll just go to the financials and look, well, your, your, uh, your management fees are down and your wages are down. Uh, was there anything else that happened? Oh, uh, geez, I, I don't know. Maybe we uh, did more advertising. Anyway, you get, you get the pattern, right? There's so many things to go on that the, the lies that might come across, and maybe they're not lies, they might just be misinformation, uh, not mm -hmm. in the media sense, but they might be just, the manager might not quite know. And they, in that sense, they're not true. They're not, they're not nefarious lies they're just someone trying to fill the hole 
And if you can even help them fill that hole, then you come up with the right answer. So we have, we do have some proper uh, backing and some proper proof to sort of suss out what's going on in the company based on the financials. And it's just such a huge advantage to have that. Um, I want to return to the acronym that Kim keeps, she keeps calling you a CBB. What does that stand for? And how, how did you get to be one? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, me, CBB stands for Chartered Business Valuator. Uh, I think my mom still calls me a certified business valuator and most people still do. Um, but it's sort of, the CBB came to came into existence with the help of the chartered accountants, which are now the chartered professional accountants. Um, it's a, it's a postgraduate program about three years after school. Most people have their CPA after I, I went for my CPA initially and I, I walked into the office of a partner one day and I said, I'm really bored and I'm quitting unless you give me something else to do. And they said, sure. You can, you can skip over this. That's, that was a ways through it. You can skip over this and just go straight to the CPB. So that's that's what you, what you did. So it's normally, you know, your BCom, so four years of school and then three years of school afterwards. Um, so it's seven years of training to get there. And then, you know, often you'll have the, the CPA on top, which is two years. And what, um, what do you, I guess, what do you bring then? What do you learn that you bring to um, business valuations? Um, do you learn the different considerations? Is it all accounting? Is it management? Is it a bit of all of those things? Yeah, let me just preface that question, Vince, by saying we don't learn a lot in law school that actually helps us in the practice of law. So it'd be nice to know that somebody get learned something that's related to what they do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, a, that's a good point, Evan. And Heather, thanks for the question. So it is, it is interesting that our CBV really covers almost everything we do in our Bachelor of Commerce. So uh, that's, that's what the Bachelor of Commerce is designed for, is so you have a really good understanding of how businesses work and you have a, you know, a, an understanding of all the aspects. So you'll, you'll need to know your accounting. You'll need to know your finance, you know, loans and that sort of thing. You'll need to know your human resources and the laws associated with that. You know your productions of operations management, how a company works and how workflow occurs and that sort of thing. And you'll, what are the other ones? Mm, not getting sued. I guess we don't do a ton of that. We do take a lot of class in, uh, in business. And you, you go through sort of all of the main considerations of a business when you go into it. The one that they don't really cover is personality. Um, and they do a little bit, but, but not a ton. And so, yeah, you, you, your whole collection of, of what you're doing is really drilling down on personality. And it's almost like a bit of a psychology experience because you're like looking at the human experience and how that, how that transforms into building a company, how, how well that company stands against other companies. And, and again, why is it different? So how does the manager lead that? How do the systems lead that? Um, yeah, it's, it's very, very holistic. The, the really common term that people use is a SWOT analysis. So what are the strengths of your company? What are your weaknesses of your company? What are your threats and your opportunities? So if you're looking at any, any old company, you'll go, okay, well, this company's got a really good sales salespeople. Um, they have a lot of experienced staff, that sort of thing. And that, and then you always have to look at it through the lens of transferability. So 
uh, we're, we're doing our SWOT just for, you know, for value of business. So we have these great things and then we have got to boil it down to how transferable are those? So will the staff go uh, with the, with the new owner? Will the sales, is the sales department, um, you know, just one guy or is it a group of people? Is it rep, rep, replicable? Is it something that can be trained? Is there a system in place? Then we go to our threats and we'd say, you know, what, what's come out in the last few years? What are the competition? What's the competition out there? Or what are the, the regulations? What kind of regulations have changed in the last year? So uh, in Alberta, a really common one would be uh, royalties. Royalties have gone up, so profits are smaller. Or it might be something like uh, uh, if you're running a big salon and you're, you're a hairdresser and all of a sudden it takes three years, or sorry, four years to become a hairdresser, not three anymore. So then your availability of staff is going to be lower. So those the threats are you know, numerous and many. And just like we were talking about before, doing the shop visit or having a beer with the client or what have it, what have you, will lead to that, right? You'll say uh, a common question I like to ask is, "What keeps you up at night? Why? What would what would what would cause you to lose sleep uh, over this?" Um, and then that's when you get sort of the ball of yarn sort of unwinding. So there's there's mm -hmm. our sort of our, our threats, our weaknesses would be um, would be something more like the opposite of a good sales team. Or something like we have a really high rent and we're locked into a rental um, contract. That, that can also be an opportunity uh, if it's if it's out there. Or we have uh, we have some you know we've had a few lawsuits and we're getting a bad name uh, right now. And that that's a, that's a sort of a weakness of the company that can't really go away anywhere. But it'd be good for a buyer to know about it. And then an opportunity would be um, something like they're uh, they're allowing. Using our hairdresser example, they're allowing uh, hairdressers to do more at-home haircuts. Or there, there's a new, there's a new technology, there's a new razor out there that allows you to do, um, you know, haircuts in less time. And there's a there's a patent on it, or there's an area agreement where someone can't actually buy the razor. That's a, it's a hairdressing example that we don't. There's not typically not a lot of value in them, but I think it's just a company that most people understand. Mm -hmm. The type of company, rather. So I think associated with that, you were just talking about the SWOT analysis part of yep. the valuation. Um, what is the essence of what drives value for a business? If I were to say one thing, it would be uh, for you know, my kind of clients, like 2 million to 50 million in revenue, I'd say it'd be transferability. Uh, that, that would be number one. Like Other than any, the obvious ones, you know, like revenue and profitability, we assume those are in place. Right. Um, but the it's transferability. Not, it's not like that, on Dragon's Den when they're just like three times revenue. That's I, how much this business is worth. That's not, that's not what you're doing. <laughs> I can't stand Dragon's Den. Those guys drive me insane. <laughs> they're all, like, no one would be on Dragon's Den if they, if they had a, they had a, you know, a going business. It's, it's hilarious. So when I first started watching Dragons, then I thought, this is cool. They're going to see some new products and then they're going to, they're going to do their own internal valuation and they're going to see what they can make of this product. Um, whereas Dragons then is basically asking these people to buy their established companies and you don't, you don't go on national TV to sell a company that's already making you a ton of money. So I, I don't even know if we'll get out of it other, other than some promotion of the company, but yeah, those, they come off as venture capitalists, but really they're uh, established, you know, just buyers of businesses. 
is really what it boils down to. So it's a, it's a weird format, but it's wildly successful, obviously. <laughs> okay, so that's a bit of a myth bust there. It's not, you don't just take revenue or profit and apply a multiplier and that's the value of your company. Um, obviously there's a lot more to it. Well, especially for an emerging technology, right? Like that's, if, uh, you know, a classic example would be if you went to um, you know, Bill Gates, if Bill Gates went on Dragon's Den, and they said, well, what, how much is your company making? They go, oh, negative $30,000, whatever it costs them to build the first computer in this garage, right? That's, you wouldn't do that. If you were a, a non-Dragon's Den, like a real venture capitalist, what you do is you, you know, you'd assess the market, you do a business valuation more or less, and then, you, then you'd make the offer on that basis. So mm. that's where Dragon's Den sort of, so it gets me crazy. But I think there, there, there is sometimes, you know, a revenue multiplier scenario. So they're using the metrics. It really is this thing like they're, they're doing it for entertainment purposes. They're using the metrics, but they're not applying it uh, to, to real things. So you would never, like you said, you never asked Bill Gates how much his computer or how much his revenue is when you're looking down, you know, the scope of the world's first personal computer. It's just right. not, and that's sort of what they're doing there. They're just right. looking the gift horse in the mouth and mm. using some valuation lingo. Right. Yeah. There are different formulas that are applied to different types of companies out there, right? So you guys would look at a, somebody comes to you with one company and then you instantly know, oh, this is, I would use this sort of calculation to calculate the value of this company, whereas a different sector company would have a different type of, of mathematics applied. Is that correct? It is, um, but it's normally a bad thing. So... Uh, just trying to think of the ones accounting firms uh, often sell on the basis of a percentage of revenue. So the, the assumption there is that the clients will be again, transferable right. and, and you can just take these clients and put them into your company and you'll be fine. But it, it's quite dangerous because that revenue doesn't also necessarily equal out into income. Let's say, okay, we're going to buy your, your accounting firm at, at one times revenue. Um, but the, the net income is only 15% in this company, whereas the average accounting firm is 20. So either you say, well, let's just change our, our, uh, our multiplier from one times revenue to uh, you know, 0.75 times revenue because you're making 15% as opposed to 20. So you know, we're 25% different. You either do that, you, know, you, you, you might end up doing that, but really in that instance, you're just doing it based on income. You're adjusting your revenue multiplier to reflect, you know, the difference in the income. Um, so I find that it's almost always a really good warning sign when you see a revenue multiplier applied to anything or an EBITDA multiplier when you see it related to anything. Because what you really care about as an investor is how much money am I going to get out of this business on a standalone basis if, if the business stands alone? um every year that's that's the question you need to ask not uh how much how much revenue it is and what could i maybe do with that or you know, what's your the, the the term ebitda is uh, earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization which are which is basically so you have your net income and then for income before tax then you add back your amortization which we were talking about earlier which is an accounting adjustment based on your capital expenditures you add back your tax, um, you add back your depreciation and amortization. So the DA and EBITDA is the same word twice, just uh, 
fun fun fact depreciation and amortization are synonyms and they are the same thing on the financial statements so it should be they, more like we, e- we, we tell people to cease and desist all the time so <laughs> those words right. mean exactly the same thing right stop and <laughs> stop double stop <laughs> Uh, and, and so when, when you add all those things back uh, on an EBITDA, for example, and I'll go back to the revenue thing after Kim, but when you add back tax, you add back depreciation and amortization, and you don't deduct something in place of it, then you have a, you know, an incorrect calculation. And let's say mm. in an accounting firm, your DA or your, your depreciation and amortization, they're very small. So they doesn't really matter so much. But yeah. what if you have this accounting firm that uh, is really, and there is one in town that's really, really high tech. They have like, they have screens the size of my windows, massive, massive screens. And they have their, they have people working side by side. It's, it's this crazy sort of like tech accounting firm. Now their, their DA would be really high. Mm. And so if someone came in and said, okay, well, you know, you're, oh, look, yeah, your, your income is 20%. Oh, and your EBITDA is like 35. That's great. That's so good, but they have less staff because they're really efficient staff based on these massive computing systems that they have. So really the average accounting firm to say their, their depreciation amortization is 5% per year of their income, like their real you know, capital expenditures. Whereas this firm is 15, they're really still only making 20, but they just have less people to deal with. So it's a nice firm to own, but it's not that much more profitable. So that's where you can really sort of get in, get, at a joint when you don't have an income derived valuation. Same with the revenue thing. They, oh, geez, 2 million in revenue. Well, I guess the company's worth 2 million bucks because you've got this mm-hmm. accounting firm that's, that's uh, got a hundred or uh, sorry, million revenue or sorry, 2 million in revenue. And you're paying you know, a hundred percent of the revenue for you know the, the whole company. But things in there that could be an issue is that the, uh, the shareholder could be um, underpaying himself and doing a whole bunch of work and driving that revenue up. And then the shareholder leaves the company and all of a sudden you got to hire five staff. I used to work with a guy named Ralph. He worked. It was insane. Like it was tax season would start and his face would be like red, like pretty red. By the end of tax season, he looked like he was going to die. And he was like, face was a tomato, like in a really good garden tomato. We're not talking about superstore junkie tomatoes. Like this guy was just dying. So, um, that, that would be another you know, way that you would have an error when you're using the revenue multipliers. Um, and they often come from, from concepts that, that do make sense. And then they, in my mind, they get adopted by unscrupulous uh, sellers. The business brokers, a lot of my clients are business brokers. They send me work. I appreciate them. They're salespeople. They're doing things that are important. They provide an important function. They do sometimes try to do their best job selling and they apply valuation techniques that don't make any sense, like a revenue multiplier. Um, or there's this idea that inventory is always uh, an additional amount on top of the value of the company, which is, I mean, if I had to buy a company and then buy the inventory on top of it, that would get pretty expensive. Well, yeah, if you don't, what kind of, what, how valuable would an evaluation be if it didn't include the inventory that this is owns? Yeah, it's, it is a thing. So I'll, I'll tell you where that comes from. Sometimes it happens in a company, a pharmaceutical company is actually a really good example mm. where uh, they buy too much drugs. Or they, uh, didn't think I'd be saying that phrase on this podcast, but they, they buy too much uh, pharmaceutical inventory and uh, they, 
then they go to sell their company and they haven't gotten rid of that inventory yet. And so normally a company of that size, let's say it's a $5 million a year, and normally your inventory would be $1.2 million a year. But they done bought too much drugs. And mm-hmm. now they have 2 million, or they have, yeah, let's just say they have 500,000 in excess inventory. So the value of their company is whatever their valuation is, plus their value of their excess inventory. Okay. So it's like excess of what they would use in a given year. Yeah. In what a reasonable or, you know, the industry standard would be or whatever they would need. And so that, that's a, the idea of the redundant asset where you have something, you know, a little bonus. So I valued a company that had, um, they built modular trailers and they had a down year. So they just, they didn't want to lay their guys off. So they just kept on building trailers and they weren't selling them. So they had literally 3 million bucks worth of trailers in their yard. And they said, well, we'll sell you the company for two. We actually have, uh, well, we, we're only going to give you 500 grand worth of trailers. And we'll just sell the rest of our trailers on our own. Um, that sort of thing. And that's where this idea of, um, uh, of different valuation metrics applying uh, sort mm-hmm. of gets, goes off the rails because you, you have always the main consideration of the amount of income after tax I can make in a year. And then you have you know, other, other ways of looking at it that come from other things. The, the revenue multiplier thing, Kim, comes from your industry <laughs> where you can really easily transfer your clients over. You say, Oh, and we've talked about this at length, right? Where you say, okay, I've got a book of business. I'm managing this many clients. I'm just literally going to turn them over to this person. And there is no work and it is streamlined. But imagine applying that revenue multiplier to a manufacturer of building trusses. Well, you got, you know, you have this revenue. So you know, it obviously makes sense. But then you're taking out all the expense considerations. You might be taking out locational factors, like their trucks have to drive farther because they're in NISQ. Whereas the company that you're comparing to that sold on a revenue multiplier basis is right in the center of Edmonton, whatever it is, it's not great. But in your industry and in the insurance industry, it makes sense. But you have to make sure it applies. And even in the insurance industry, that's starting to fall apart. Mm-hmm. So revenue multipliers are getting out of control because mm-hmm. they're not tempered by the income considerations of the company. And the other thing with revenue multipliers, and man, I didn't know I could go on about revenue multipliers for so long. <laughs> Because I mentioned Dragon's Den, I'm sorry, Vince. I got you all. I got you all worked up. No, <laughs> but this is this is so important because what do you see when you're looking at buying a business? Revenue multiplier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like that is the metric that people know and talk about. So getting all this information from you is so valuable. So keep going. Don't stop. What else is wrong with revenue multipliers? Okay, where was I at? I kind of lost. Uh, the insurance of... industry oh, and yeah. they're getting out of control. Yeah. Yeah, the, the insurance industry is getting completely out of control because they what happened was they were saying that they were at, I forget, what they're, they're at crazy numbers right now, but for a long time it was 1.5 and then it went up to 1.75 because initially they said, well, you know, we're going to, let's just say it's 1.5. I, I think it's quite a bit higher now. But at 1.5, they said, okay, I'm buying it on a revenue multiplier of 1.5 because I can integrate it into my company. Okay, that's fine. And then someone said, wait a second you can integrate it into your company and cut costs. So I want an extra 0.25. I said, okay, fine. Well, you know what? You're right. You're right. You got me. It's 1.75. And then they said, hold on a second. You're going to get more clients because you're going to grow as a company and you get higher, a better reputation um, because now it's not going to be Bernard and Jonesy. It's going to be Bernard, Jonesy and whatever. And you're going to have a better reputation. So by buying my company, your company's getting a better reputation. 
And he's like, oh yeah, you know what? It is probably worth an extra quarter point. So now it's two, got a two times multiplier. And then it gets to two and then they realize, geez, you know what? Not actually that big of a benefit from being a bigger company. People, some of our clients like dealing with a smaller company. So these, these sort of add-ons to the multiplier don't, um, don't materialize in the way that they think they're going to when you get right. too speculative. And that's what, right. when you take out the income point on it, like if they, if they would have sat back and said, hold on, let's actually do a projection. Let's see what happens if, um, if we do this and you know, what our uptake is likely to be. And maybe we'll meet in the middle at eight, you know, 1.875 or 1.8725 and see that, like, you know, what, what could actually happen here? Because there is a risk associated with this. Yeah, I agree that it's likely that we're going to have a big rep and we're going to get more corporate clients or we're going to get whatever, mm-hmm. but maybe that won't materialize. Or if it, if we're saying it is, we've got to apply a slightly higher risk factor to that. And so going back to the income would be good. Doing it maybe a projection forward would be good. Um, but the revenue multiplier can get wild on you if you don't go back to the fundamentals of how much money am I going to make from this company on a standalone basis mm. uh, if I buy it? Mm. And then and then, then go into your special interests. Um, that brings me to sort of another point is that, um, that Evan brought up earlier. And because we were going on, I was going on so long about that. And as you can tell, I can talk if I, if I try. Um, <laughs> the, the valuation can, one of the assumptions often is that there is no, this is an, an innate uh assumption in evaluation is that the valuation does not consider uh, benefits of the special interest purchaser. So if Joey's trucking buys uh, Joey's Zoom Boom, then we would, we would think that Joey's trucking would get uh, the Zoom Boom work from the Zoom Boom company that they're buying, as well as more trucking work, right? So they'd say, well, you know, the Zoom Boom clients are the same as the trucking clients, and they have, they have 10 clients that we don't have, so we'll probably get all their work now that we bought the Zoom Boom company. So uh, the trucking company is going to grow, but we can't value the Zoom Boom company that's being acquired on the basis of how Joey's trucking is going to do on top of it. And that's called the special interest purchaser consideration. Mm. That's something that we just, we don't do in valuations, but we see a lot of, a lot of folks, especially uh, probably more so in matrimonial because they'll say, well, yeah, but you know, if someone, if, if she sells her company to, to anyone, they're going to, they're going to benefit from, from the company in this way and that way. we got to say, well, they're not though. They're keeping, they're keeping the company um, and we're valuing the company on a standalone basis. And the, the owner, the owner is not going to get the special interest considerations. And again, when we value a company, unless we make an assumption, this is where I'm tying in what you said earlier, Evan, does the purpose have to do with the difference you know, in, in the value conclusion? And it can, if you agree to do special interest purchaser considerations, say that 10 times fast. Um, if you have those in place, then that would uh, result in a different set of information and set of assumptions and therefore conclusions. But in a matrimonial aspect, you value the company on a standalone basis because that's the asset that's transferring uh, off the map property statement. Right. And sort of going back to what you said at the very beginning is that you're trying to provide a notional value of what it would be put on the market or sell for without actually selling it or putting it on the market. So um, that wouldn't necessarily account for that, that special buyer or one particular buyer you're looking at buyers, generally the market. That's, yeah, that's just it. You're looking at the, 
looking at the market on a standalone basis mm-hmm. and not not a particular buyer, but that that's probably the most common sort of misconception. Um, and that's some of the work, you know, I, I'll say often, and this is a little, a little bit smart alecky, but you'll say, you know, I, I, I can only value the company one way. And that that's essentially saying, I can't value it on the basis that this and this is going to happen. Um, that most, that more closely relates to when I go suit shopping, I'm like, I'm going to have bigger arms next year. And they say, well, I can only, I can only uh, make your suit for today. Uh, so the same thing with the with the business. You can only value the company based on the information we have today, on what we know today. And if we want to make a whole bunch of different suits, then uh, we're going to have to see a whole bunch of you know different mm-hmm. people or you know different looking same person at different times, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so not to go ahead and layer another layer of complexity on all of this, but I know some of the examples that you gave were pretty straightforward. Like I understand there's probably not a lot of like psychology or emotion involved with um, bank financing, right? That's going to be a fairly, fairly neutral ground, but in divorces, say, or corporate divorces, um, I'm assuming there's divergent interests sometimes. So are there common areas of disagreement in business valuations or how does a neutral like, and how does a neutral like you address those things? I think you've touched on it a little bit already, but I'm going (laughs) to ask if you could drill down into that a little bit. Sure. Um, I'll start with saying that my favorite books and not when I was a kid, um, but when I got into business valuation, it was about three years in were Sherlock Holmes books. Mm, uh, okay. Arthur Conan Doyle writes just some fantastic stuff, even for someone in their thirties or forties, like they, mm-hmm. they're just so good. And one of the things that happened in, in Sherlock's book or in Arthur Conan Doyle's book, Sherlock goes to a butcher and he's trying to find out if someone uh, had come to the butcher shop yet. Uh, somebody he's trying to follow. And he said, he said to Watson, he said, Watson, I bet if I ask this butcher, can I see your ledger? He'll say, you know, go pound sand, get out mm-hmm. of here. So he said, so instead he sort of made a way of kind of baiting the butcher. And he said, I bet you, I bet you only sell, uh, you know, three sides a day. And the butcher said, yeah, right. I sell five. He goes, I don't believe you. Show me your ledger. Right. And so the butcher showed him his ledger. And, and there you have it. It was easy information. So to a certain degree, there's there's some sleuthing like that to be done. There's a little bit of baiting to be done. Um, and it's it's important to be able to draw information out of people. Now you can do it in a in also in a, in a very friendly way, uh, or you can do it in a more of a determinative way in the sense that you're, you're saying, well, the person uh, paying for the business or buying the other partner of the business is going to want the value to be lower. Oh, and the person who is, you know, being bought out wants the value to be higher. That's mm-hmm. a, that's kind of an obvious one. But again, where, where you sort of, where you sort of come down on on finding that out is is in your your art of reading the tea leaves, having those financial statements to go on, and understanding someone's interest going in, right? Um, to make it a little bit, you know, nicer for that person to to describe to them that you're. You're wanting to know the interests of both parties and that you're going to bring everyone's information to the table. That's probably pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't think I'm quite answering your question, Heather. Can you, mm. can you ask it again or, or rephrase it? 
No, but I, I kind of like the uh, path you've gone down. I think it's interesting. Um, were there, are there common areas of contention in any of these valuations? But uh, I, I think what you've said is really helpful and interesting too. There's the common areas are personal expenses, which uh, is, I find one that people really get hung up on. Mm. Um, and one of my favorite lawyers, I won't say it was, but older lawyer, uh, said, you know, how much can we really be talking about here um, in terms of how it affects the value of the company? Um, and so people will get really hung up on it. But I think that the important thing there is to give, regardless of how small it is, is to give that credence. And I think the reason why it becomes so so much of a focus is when the one spouse isn't in the company at all and the other spouse is. And the only thing the other spouse ever sees is the one spouse buying dinner with the corporate credit card. Mm. or sees the one spouse, um, you know, putting the, you know, having the company truck and buying gas out of the company. And so uh, Mr. or Mrs. business owner and business operations manager knows so much about the company compared to it. And they, they know, you know what they're supposed to be running for margins and they know how much it, you know, it costs to keep the lights on and the business afloat and so on and so forth. And they, they are in a superior knowledge position, right? And that sucks for the person mm -hmm. who's not in the company. That's not fun. You feel very powerless. You feel like there's a big black box, like things can be hidden. And so you go to what you know. You see, you see these expenses going through the company and you want not, you like when you find out the quantum of it, it might not even be that. It, sometimes it is. And mm -hmm. I mean, often it's of significance, but it's for the amount of time and effort it gets. It's, it's not a major uh, piece of significance yeah. in terms of a company valuation. It's different with guideline income, but with company valuation, it's not typically a big deal. But Focusing on those personal expenses really gives that person uh, sort of credence to the knowledge that they do have. You say, mm. hey, I'm going to spend that hour with you. We're going to discuss. We're going to go over everything that you think's in there. We're going to go over the general ledger. We're going we're gonna to suss that out. We're going to show you why it is, why it isn't in there, and how, you know, how we can answer all your questions on the, on the engagement. And maybe there's, you know, maybe there's some, you know, a good find in there. And then mm. we get to add that back. You to add it to the value of the business and that person's um, the small area of knowledge gets recognized. And that can go a long way to help uh, settling, mm -hmm. uh, settling a, a matrimonial dispute, especially with, you know, with the business being a, a bone of contention. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we see that. I, I just learned something just now. Um, that's called Sayers law. Oh, in any dispute, the intensity of feeling is inversely proportional to the value of the issues at stake. That's why academic politics are so bitter, is the, uh, <laughs> is the end part to that. But that's called Sayers Law. It's like, you know, the, uh, the tempers were so high because the stakes were so low, that type of saying that I'm sure we've all heard. And we, I, I mean, I see that sometimes you have to ha have a word with the client to say like, is it, is it really worth it to fight about this couple thousand dollars when we're talking about overall a hundred thousand dollars, you want to die on a hill worth $2,000. Yeah. But yeah. I see what you mean though. Like you, you brought an interesting kind of um, psychological perspective to what's at issue there, the, of the outsider seeing something they understand and, and looking for justice on the principle of, like I don't understand all the other weird stuff and about the business and the industry, but 
You went to lunch every single day at the same restaurant. And I feel like that was just unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Not that that would necessarily, you know, half of that. They know it's there. Right yeah. They know it's there. Right. And how can they trust you if such an obvious thing, like, you know, like you said, they go for lunch. If, you know, Sammy's sandwich shop is on the general ledger 365 times a year and you don't adjust for that, how, how can someone trust you? Yeah. Um, and the answer is they, well, you haven't either, you don't care. You haven't done your work. If, if someone's brought that to your attention, you're doing it. And that's, I find that's a really, really good one. The other, the other area of contention is, um, is probably that, uh, that capital expenditures item where someone says, and it's, and it's, again, it goes, that's actually funny how full circle it is. One person will get advice. They say, well, no, a company's valued based on EBITDA. And then they say, well, no, the company doesn't actually make that money, not that much money. Well, I've done my EBITDA calculation. I've done my EBITDA calculation. Yeah. Company's making 400 grand a year. And then I said, well, yeah, but we buy 200,000 worth of equipment a year. So really there's only 200,000 left over at the end of the year. And I take a salary of 200,000. So really the company isn't making any money on a market basis. Um, it's really just worth its assets or something like that, right? It's these valuation principles um, that are, are stuck in people's heads that people either get bad advice or don't understand that. Yeah, that's probably a better way to put it. Don't understand that the accounting that the financial statements don't don't tell the story, and that's I mean that's why our reports are so long. That's why we go to school for an extra three years because the financial statements really don't tell the story. And cleaning up, cleaning the financial statements and putting them into the perspective of a potential purchaser and what they'd be looking for, and, you know, the reason why they would buy the company and the money that they can expect to have at the end of every year is is the big one. Right. So those that's a yeah. I just said one the other day where they said. And I'm using the numbers from that example to say, well, there's 4,000 bucks a year. I said, well, yeah, but you guys don't pay to pay your, like both of the shareholders are, they're matrimonial. You guys don't pay yourselves a wage. Um, so we got to take this market wage. Well, well, no, it makes $400,000 a year. How is it not worth 200? Well, someone else bought this, they have to hire someone. And then the company wouldn't make them any money. And so they wouldn't be willing to pay anything for it. That would be the other, other major contentious area. Well, and that, that speaks to, to what you were mentioning earlier, that transferability really drives value, all other things being equal. Um, and that's a, especially for small businesses. And I mean, small in number of personnel, not necessarily revenue. Um, that's, that can be a huge challenge because if uh, you haven't structured your business so that somebody else can just step into your shoes and take over right now, that makes it very difficult to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, because is the value really there or is, is it too much tied to the principle of that business? So, I mean, I hope one takeaway for any business owners who are listening to this is, um, you know, try to, try to McDonald's eyes, your business as much as is reasonably possible. And, uh, you know, I think I've said this before on this podcast, but, um, there's, I don't know if you know this, Vince, but there's two temperatures that the McDonald's grills have. Do you know what they are? No, I don't. It's on and off. That's it. The grill temperature is set across all the McDonald's in the world. They've figured out the optimal grill temperature and no employee can change that temperature. They can't screw that one up. It's just on and off. That's the cooking mm-hmm. time for the patties that are uniform in size, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and you, people may think, oh, well, I'm not McDonald's. 
I don't even have a grill. And fine, but that's not the point, right? The point is, can you apply those principles to your business? And the more you can do that, the more it can be, you know, turnkey, then the better your chances are of getting a good valuation from cross valuations and selling it and getting out and retiring and uh, buying a coffee farm in Costa Rica <laughs> or Puerto Rico. Which was it? Puerto Rico? Costa Rica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just it. Um, yeah, transferability is key. The other, if we're on the sort of transferability thing, the other thing is um, growing your transferability internally uh, for if we have any sort of estate planning folks watching is that's a really often overlooked thing to do, but to, to pick three or four guys or girls or cats or dogs to you think can, you know, take over the company in however many years and, and start that, like start your company with that in mind. Uh, so if you're 20 years out and even frost, we, we do that. We look at, we have a 20 year plan and we say, do we have, enough people here that would buy this company. And so if we say we've got seven people here that may, you know, buy our shares off of us, well, you know, one of them's going to quit uh, and one of them's going to switch professions and one of them's going to get a post or whatever. So now we have four left so that, you know, we're in good stage and then you just go on, on reevaluate it. So that's a, another aspect of transferability. Uh, that, Succession planning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's in there. But I find that people think of succession planning as like, that's, that's the piece that they always miss is the, the internal succession plan. But, and they always, they'll just think, oh, maybe not. I think I'm, no, I'm, yeah, you mean internal company succession planning? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So just doing that properly and keeping your, keeping your finger on the pulse on that. And like, and that's the, another way, that's what I love about business valuations. You always come to these full circles. If you're building your, your company with, with the managers in mind and someone that you, you want to sell to, then you start structuring your operations so they can take over. And so if you hire somebody, say, listen, I want to, I want you to take over the company soon or, you know, within five to 10 years, you're going to start thinking, how do I transfer this company? How do I transfer my knowledge out to this person? Then you start systematizing it. Then you start teaching it down and then you teach it to more people. And then your company starts building like an actual um, knowledge base internally and ingrained, but also you'll, you'll want to write it down if you want to be really safe about it so that you can train it to more people. And like knowing from, from training um, people under me, the more, the more you try and secure your company for sale, the more people you hire and the, more, the less time you have to goof around and explain things verbally. So then you start, um, you start turning things into manuals. I do videos, so whenever I'm correcting uh, a file for someone, I'll say, I'll throw in the zoom. I'll start, I'll do my corrections. Say, Oh, look, you messed up here. I'll throw in a joke or whatever. And then we have you know, ingrained manuals right there and right now. And that's, that's a, you know, a, a, a huge key um, to, to, you know, transferability and, and company value. Nice. I mean, who doesn't want to walk into a company? They say, yeah, you can buy this company and there's five guys who can do the job that the, you know, the most qualified person can do right now. It'd be a dream. Whereas, okay, welcome to this company. Um, Good luck. Really, once I leave, well, I don't really have anyone. I'm already here. here. Ralph's gone. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 Oh, man, when Ralph left, that was a nightmare. We traveled so hard. I'm he, sure. He burnt out. And he left. 
And yeah. we had to hire guys from Saskatoon. And oh, this one guy was a nightmare. We had a, yeah, it was, is absolutely <laughs> unreal. Wow, yeah. good callback, Heather. Yeah, yeah, don't how, are the, <laughs> how are the manuals for the farm coming? Well, we do have them actually. Um, but I hired, so the farm, the people who sold me the farm, uh, their daughter has a, seems like a sort of like a master's in uh, agriculture. So she went to, they sold me half their farm basically. And so I hired their daughter uh, to be my farm manager. So, I mean, I, I basically got the whole family's knowledge from, from hiring her. So that was a real, that was a real lucky one. And, but she does, she does document and do manuals for everything and all that sort of thing. And she's passing it on to our, to our other farmers that are down there who are nice. uh, pretty good too. But I, that, that was, I mean, that was the, the equivalent of the, the guy who buys the business and somehow there's like, you know, an expert just floating around ready to take over. So that, that was, that was a streak of luck. Nice. Well, so that, that leads me to my very last question, sir. I'm just going to get it in here because I only have one more. But do CBB specialize? Do you have an, an expert mm. in a specific area? Because I'm thinking, how does somebody shop for a CBB? Can they just kind of like mm. throw the dart? Or does, does CBB specialize in a specific type of company or something? They can. Yeah, they, they can. Uh, to me, a good CBV understands the fundamentals of, of business valuation. So there should be, there should be some, you know, some really good fundamentals that will allow a CBV to value almost anything. Um, there are some markets where specialization is probably better than not. Um, but I find that even when you specialize, so uh, IT, for example, I think I'm probably one of the first people to have appraise an app in Edmonton, like a, and I've done a few of them, and no one, no one else that I called and talked to about it had ever done it. But you always end up going back to the, well, how much income is it going to make for us? And, um, but with that in mind, apps like insurance companies are a specific sort of industry where you might, they might have an idea, like the, the it's sort of like valuing apps. So I guess yes, they do specialize, not often. Um, and things like emerging technologies are something where it's a, it's a very, very small knowledge base, mm. but that will, that specialization will only last so long because someone else will do another app job or someone else will do what have you. I know some people like to, to do uh, there's one company that does dental evaluations, but that's because they also do dental equipment appraisals and that's all they do. And they're not CBVs or anything like that. I'd say as a rule, some business valuators are better in different industries because they have more exposure, um, but specialization isn't highly common. If you're dealing with the emerging technology, you want to make sure to go with someone who's at least valued a company like that before. Yeah. That yeah, I was thinking kind of about like the new spawning industries out there like cannabis and, and crypto. And, and these are areas that would take a lot of time for CBVs to look through and figure out what the heck are these people doing and where's the money going to come from? So yeah, just, just like tech startups in the late nineties and early two thousands would have been, do you know what Elon Musk's first company was? PayPal. Yeah. That's where he came from. Mm. It was like a bunch of college buddies started PayPal and now he flies rockets to outer space. 
Well, Kim, if you had given me a chance to guess, I would have guessed that you were going to ask your classic closing question. So I'm going to have to ask it. And she says, as the money person, I always know that our listeners are wondering about how much does a business valuation cost? So um, can you give us a range or an idea of how these are priced out? Well, Heather, how much would it cost to not have a business valuation? That's the better question. <laughs> Excellent. Deb. So true. Get a business valuation today. Um, they they typically cost between five and six. Uh, I think that the small, the non-public firms, so not the MMPs and the KPMGs of the world are, are similar in price. Five and, five and six calculation. dollars? That's great. Yeah, fantastic. That's, that's really good deal. Yeah, <laughs> I don't make much money. Uh, no, they're yeah between five and six thousand, and um, they that's that's a low level valuation. So the calculation based on management assumptions, those are appropriate for uh, tax purposes, for internal decision making. So you know, uh, corporate divorce as long as it's friendly and everyone's agreeing, mm-hmm. uh, they're appropriate for most matrimonial purposes. They're appropriate for financing. Um, okay. they're not likely appropriate for court, but I have seen them go to court. My, my calculations have gone to court. Wow. Um, and it's the only reason why I think they, everything was okay with them is because the, the other side also won't do a calculation, but if they were to do an estimate, it'd be bad. An estimate is typically about 2,500 on each side. So, uh, so it goes five to six and then it would go, um, eight and a half to about, uh, nine and a half. And then it would go a comprehensive, uh, some CBBs don't even do comprehensives. I do some work for nation, like First Nations. So they always want comprehensive. And those are normally minimum starting at 15,000 and, and, and up. And okay. uh, yeah, and the, okay. the value for money from an independent, like a smaller shop. Uh, so for not a national firm is, is pretty significant. I know their, their prices are typically 50% higher than ours. And most of us are Court of Queen's Bench uh, tested uh, at least once and so yeah, there is there is good value for money there for sure so the, the starting at fifteen thousand up that's the one where you like move in right you like <laughs> yeah. live, the, with, the, live with the directors for six months that's right yeah you that's, yeah. you have beers with them every friday they're your best friend yeah and then uh yeah the and real fine tooth comb sort of thing yeah, and lots of market research is the is the big one there, and those those aren't really necessary. The estimates, the the good court ready document, and it's there's nothing you don't need anything more than that uh, typically, unless you have a, a special funding requirement, which most government things do. Okay. Well, I don't have a last question. I guess I already asked it. My last question was my last question. <laughs> uh, Vince, was there anything that we didn't cover today that you would really wanted to get off your chest? Well, I think we talked. I think we talked about quite a quite a few things. Um, I'd only summarize to just say that understanding a business is is more about understanding the differences and understanding the personalities uh, than anything. And I don't mean the differences just in personality, but you know the difference in technology, why they're better or why they're worth worse. And um, you know having that long discussion, having a relationship to the point where you're basically friends. Um, or you know, on a on a friend level of communication, and it doesn't have to necessarily be friendly because it isn't always. 
having a point where you you know what's going on in the company a real way is uh is crucial i don't think you have a business valuation without having that if i were to complain about something it was that some valuators uh including uh, some of the smaller shops will do evaluation without talking to management and if you want to start a fight that's a that's a great way if you want to stay if you want to go to court not talking to the manager imagine what we just talked about with the the spouse who's not in the company saying i want you know, I want to know about these lunches or I want to know about this truck and how much gas is getting through the, put through the company. Yeah. Manage your company, manage your, imagine your company gets valued and uh, the valuator has never heard your voice, has mm-hmm. never sent you a question. And it's all coming through documentation and maybe discovery or whatever it is and that you don't have the capacity to, um, to, to talk about what makes your company tick. And it's, I don't know why evaluators would do that because to me, that's a massive professional liability. Uh, and like you just, you can have a huge liability there. Our Institute requires that we get the information if it's available and skipping that step just because it might be a little tough is a disservice. Uh, but also it's just like any bad thing. If you do the opposite, it's awesome. You can get a really great valuation, a really good understanding of the company. And if you're buying a company and you have a evaluator that does that, and they can convey to you that information about the company that you would never get. You never get that level of information from a company, even if you're buying it, unless you have someone going in with, uh, with the ability and willingness to get as much information out of it possible to really come up with the best conclusion. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a real beauty. So the opposite's really bad and, the, and, and doing it is, is really quite good. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also I think that that's, that, but that's what separates evaluators in terms of quality, high quality, uh, just knows more about the people and the processes of the company and, and really cares to know and really wants to know. Yeah. It makes me think of something you said earlier. Um, like the better your input is, the better your output's going to be. I mean, it's just, it seems almost as simple as that in a way, despite lots of those things being pretty complicated. Yeah. Oh, and joint retainers are so nice. Like when you hear both sides, same, same thing. You just have more inputs, right? Yeah. You can, you can, you've got more, it's like having the financials plus comments on it and then you can go into it. It's, it's, it's really quite good. <laughs> well, uh, Vince, thank you so much. Oh, I'm cutting you off, Evan. Did you want to? No, that's what I was, I was, oh, okay. was going to say essentially the same thing. I was, I, I guess I would only add, uh, like Heather said, or maybe it was Kim, that you're the second business valuator that we've had on here. And I was thinking before we started, am I going to really learn something new here? But yes, was the answer to that question. So I, I just really appreciate your depth of knowledge that you've brought to us today. And uh, I, I thought it was great. I learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It was a great chat. I normally talk at length. I'm normally a listener. Also a good skill for evaluator, being a good listener. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Well, we appreciate your time coming on and being a talker today. Thanks, Vince. (laughs) This has been another episode of Access to Justice. Thanks for listening or watching, however you've come to us today. If you have any questions you'd like us to address on the podcast, please send an email to accesstojusticepodcast at gmail.com. That's access, the number two, justice podcast. And we'll do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.